Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. continuing our series on a closer look at 12 ordinary men and tonight we're going to just start right in I'm not even going to really do any review and there's a pattern that I want to see if you pick up in tonight's lesson because we're going to learn something well if I tell you then you won't I'm not going to tell you let's just see if you pick it up okay so of course we've been talking quite a bit about whom Peter so Peter's character it was molded and it was shaped after the example he had witnessed in whom? In Christ, right? Okay. Now, he had the raw material for becoming a leader, and that was important. We discussed that. His life experiences helped hone and sharpen his natural leadership abilities, because that's also important. And it's also really vital when you think about it. But the real key to everything, the essential foundation upon which true leadership always rises or falls is character. And we ended last week talking about the importance of character and how when there is no character present, it's just not going to work. First of all, you're not going to be able to have people trust you, so they're not going to follow you, and you will just see where things are short-lived and kind of fall apart. You do not have a decent foundation if you do not have solid character. So we established that. Do you agree with that? Yes. Okay. So it was character qualities Peter developed through his intimate association with Jesus that ultimately made him the great leader that he became. Now this reminds all of us of the importance in whom we choose to associate and how much time we spend with them. We may not always realize it. You know, sometimes it may be subconscious and we really don't catch it. But the tendencies of the people whom you associate with can have an effect on your life. You know, you've heard it probably since you were a child. Birds of a feather, birds of a feather, birds of a feather, <laughs> birds of a feather flock together, okay? Or I'm sure you've heard this, if you really want to know something about a person, all you have to do, other than just, you know, you can locate them by their conversation, also check out their friends. If you check out their friends, it will tell you a little bit more about them. Now, this I thought was interesting. Um, a Christian author and pastor by the name of James Russell Miller. He was popular, <laughs> he's not somebody you probably would know, because he was popular in the 1800s <laughs> and early 1900s, so he's actually kind of like older than we are. <laughs> um, uh, he wrote something that I really appreciated, so that's why I'm sharing it. He wrote, quote, the only thing that walks back from the tomb with the mourners and refuses to be buried is the character of a man. What a, char what a man is survives him. It can never be buried, end of quote. I like that, because that is really true. Like, we use terms like, you know, you write your own eulogy and things like that, but the whole point of the matter is that's really true. That, no matter what is said or done, that is what is going to remain, the character of the particular individual. So that is true sentiment, but there's something more important than what people think of us after we transition. There's something even more important than that. 
What is far more important is the impact we have while we are here. That is truly what is most important. So what are some of the character qualities of a spiritual leader that were developed in the life of Peter? One important one is submission. And you can jot that down if you want. At first, that may seem an unusual quality to cultivate in a leader. After all, the leader is the person in charge. And he expects other people to submit to him, right? That's the usual assumption. But a true leader doesn't just demand submission. He is an example of submission by the way he submits to the Lord and to those in authority over him. Everything the true spiritual leader does ought to be marked by submission to every legitimate authority, especially submission to God and his word. Now that's a mouthful, but that is something that in any situation that you may find yourself in, whether it's, I don't know, visiting a church, taking a job, whatever it is, where there's somebody there that is supposed to be the leader, you need to use those particular things to figure out if that's a good fit for you, if that leader is really somebody that you feel as if you can receive from. Because that, to me, is extremely important, okay? Leaders tend, and this is why, we're gonna go into why I say that. Leaders tend to be confident and aggressive Okay, they have a natural tendency to do what? To dominate, that's part of what makes them a leader. Peter was definitely like that. I mean, we know that for a fact. Now, as we have learned, he was what? Quick to speak and very quick to act. As we have seen, he was a man of initiative, meaning he was always inclined to take charge of every situation, no matter what. Now, in order to balance that side of him, the Lord taught him submission. He accomplished this in some rather remarkable ways. One classic way is found in Matthew's Gospel, the 17th chapter. This account comes at a time when Jesus was returning with the 12 back to Capernaum, their home base, after a period of ministry that involved quite a bit of travel, okay? A tax collector was in town at the time making rounds to collect the annual half shekel tax for each person 20 years old or older. Now this was not a tax paid to Rome, but it was a tax paid for the upkeep of the temple. And we find this, or it's validated, what I'm saying to you, if you turn to Exodus. Turn to Exodus, the 30th chapter, and we're gonna look at verses 11 through 16. And I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified Classic Edition, Exodus 30, starting with verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the Israelites, every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that no plague may fall upon them when you number them. This is what everyone shall give as he joins those already numbered, a half shekel in terms of the sanctuary shekel, a shekel being 20 garaz, a half shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone from 20 years old and upward, as he joins those already numbered, he shall give this offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than a half shekel. When you give this offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, 
and you shall take the atonement money of the Israelites and use it exclusively for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the Israelites to remembrance before the Lord to make atonement for themselves. Now Matthew also writes, you're in, if you go back to what I mentioned to you before, go back to Matthew 17. And I want you to look at verse 24. Matthew's Gospel, the 17th chapter, we're going to look at verse 24. And I'm going to share this out of the Amplified Classic. When they arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the half shekel, the temple tax, went up to Peter and said, does not your teacher pay the half shekel? Okay, so you can already imagine what Peter said, okay? So if you, if you look down, drop down to verse 25. And he answered yes. And when he came home, Jesus spoke to him about it first, saying, what do you think, Simon? Now, notice what he calls him here. He's calling him what? Simon. Now, you know, because we talked about this earlier, the difference of when he called him Simon versus when he called him Peter. So we already know with him calling him Simon that we know the way in which Simon Peter was thinking was not exactly the way the Lord wanted him to think, which is why he called him Simon and not Peter, okay? So anyway, he says to him, what do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly rulers collect duties or tribute? From their own sons or from others? Not of their own family. Okay. Look at, because of course Jesus asked him this, by the way, because he already knew what Peter was thinking, because, you know, this is Jesus. He already knew. However, this particular tax apparently posed a bit of a challenge in Peter's mind. But here's why. Again, the reason we're dissecting all of this is because we want to really understand Peter and where he's coming from. Peter truly loved Jesus. There was no question about that. So he was looking at it this way. Was Jesus morally obliged as the incarnate son of God to pay for the upkeep of the temple like any other mere man? After all, the sons of earthly kings don't pay taxes in their father's kingdoms, so why should Jesus? That's where he was coming from, Peter. Jesus knew what Peter was thinking, so when he had come into the house, he anticipated the question, and that's why he asked him in the 25th verse. But now, Peter answered, so just drop down to verse 26. And we, when Peter said, from other people, not their own family, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, in order not to give offense and cause them to stumble, that is to cause them to judge unfavorably and unjustly, go down to the sea and throw in a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find there a shekel. Take it and give it to them to pay the temple tax for me and for yourself. Okay, because he didn't want them. In other words, you know how we always say, and I've always said it to my children, you do not want your good to be evil spoken of. He did not want them to be looked at in any kind of unfavorable manner. So therefore, it was like they're collecting shekels from people. So what are we going to do? We're going to go ahead, Peter, and we're going to go ahead and pay it because we don't want to be looked upon in any kind of unfavorable manner. Why? Because you don't want your message to be watered down by what someone thinks of you. That's the other lesson that we can learn from this. Okay, so anyway, 
the coin in the mouth of the fish, actually, if you want to, you don't have to write this down, but just so that you know, it's actually called a stator. It's a single coin worth a shekel, because remember we kept talking about the, everybody had to pay a half shekel? Well, in this particular instance, this stator is equal to a shekel because they needed two halves, right? One for Jesus and one for Peter. It was exactly enough to pay the temple tax for two. In other words, Jesus arranged for Peter's tax to be paid in full just as well as his own. Now, this story is intriguing because the miracle Jesus worked demonstrated his absolute sovereignty. And yet, at the same time, he was being an example of human submission. I mean, think about that for a minute, okay? Jesus supernaturally directed a fish that had swallowed a coin to take the bait on Peter's hook, all right? If Jesus was Lord over nature to such a degree, he certainly had the authority to opt out of paying temple tax. Yet, he taught Peter, by example, how to submit willingly, okay? Submission is an indispensable character quality for leaders to cultivate. If they would teach people to submit, then what does that mean? It means that they must be examples of submission themselves. Sometimes a leader must submit, even when there might seem to be a very good argument against submitting. Peter learned the lesson well. Why can I say that? Because years later, he wrote about it in 1 Peter. Turn with me to 1 Peter, the second chapter. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. 1 Peter 2. I'm going to share it with you right now. I'm into the Amplified Classic. I don't know, so we're going to go with that. <laughs> so starting with verse 13, this is Peter speaking. And he writes, Be submissive to every human institution and authority for the sake of the Lord, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to bring vengeance, punishment, justice to those who do wrong and to encourage those who do good service. For it is God's will and intention that by doing right, your good and honest lives should silence, muzzle, gag, the ignorant charges and ill-formed criticisms of foolish persons. Live as free people, yet without employing your freedom as a pretext for wickedness but live at all times as servants of God. Show respect for all men, treat them honorably. Love the brotherhood, the Christian fraternity of which Christ is the head. Reverence God, honor the emperor. You who are household servants, be submissive to your masters with all proper respect. Not only to those who are kind and considerate and reasonable, but also to those who are surly, overbearing, unjust, and crooked. Okay, now think about this. This is Peter who wrote this, okay? This was the very same Peter. <laughs> it's the lesson we have to see how he totally learned this from Jesus. Because when you think about it, you are free in one sense, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. 
Rather, regard yourself as the Lord's bond slave. You are a citizen of heaven and merely a sojourner on earth, but submit every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, the thing that Peter saw, and I think he wrote it so well, again, you see his heart. He did not in any way, shape, or form ever want to do anything that made people look at his master Jesus in a negative way. And we should feel that way today. If we, I mean, you know, I, I even feel guilty. Like, say for instance, if I chew a piece of gum, I won't even take like the gum wrapper and throw it out in litter, okay? Even though, in, you know, I mean, come on, the streets of New York are nasty, okay? So I mean, it's not like the gum wrapper is gonna make a bit of difference, I, I know that. But to me, I feel as if God would not want that, okay? Because we're not supposed to litter. That's why we're supposed to have trash bins. So that's why I won't do it. It's not because, you know, I think it's gonna beautify, you know, I don't. But I just, I feel as if it would be the wrong thing to do. And that's how we're supposed to govern ourselves. We're supposed to care about how we are representing the kingdom. I, you know, I think that that's very, very important. And it's something that Peter clearly learned. And I, I, I learned a lot from Peter. And I'm hoping that as we're going through these different things, and I've been saying this through this whole series, that you can identify your life with some of theirs so that you can see, oh, yeah, I am like that. Or, oh, yeah, I need to tweak that because I want to be more like that. That's why we're spending so much time with this. Because the whole bottom line is <laughs> we already know that we are indeed royalty in a kingdom that is not of this world. So you are first and foremost a subject of Christ's kingdom and a mere stranger and pilgrim on this earth. And when you really look at it that way, it allows you to look at life totally different. You know, there's this old-fashioned song, why it just came back to me now, but maybe because the first time I heard it, I was like nine years old, and we won't talk about how long ago that was. But anyway, Shirley Caesar had come to um, my church at the time, and she and her sister and the rest of them sang this song, but it left such an indelible impression on my heart, and it was called Stranger, on the road. And she was talking about how we are strangers on this road because we truly are children of the Most High God. And the kingdom that governs everything about who we are is not this foreign land and all the stuff that's going here. We really are like strangers here. So that's really, really true. And it was true back then, and it's still true the same today. Um, Peter was, when we really look at him, the reason why this whole thing of him learning about submission is so important is because you've got to remember the story of he's the same young and brash man who slashed off the ear of the high priest's servant. Okay, we just talked about that. He is the same man who once struggled over the idea of Jesus paying taxes, but since he learned to submit, not an easy lesson, because he was really a natural leader, Peter was especially, he was inclined to be dominant, forceful, aggressive, and resistant to the idea of submission. But Jesus taught him to submit willingly, even when he thought he had a good argument for refusing to submit. And remember, that's what I had said earlier 
a good leader has to sometimes do that, even when he feels as if he has an argument against submission. Now, a second quality Peter learned was restraint. You can write that down, because that's important. Most people with natural leadership abilities do not naturally excel when it comes to exercising restraint. Self-control, discipline, moderation, and reserve, I'll repeat that, self-control, discipline, moderation, and reserve don't necessarily come naturally to someone who lives life at the head of the pack. That is why so many leaders have challenges with anger and out-of-control passions. And that can be a lot of different things, okay? And th that's a very, very true statement, okay? Many times, leaders have issues with both of those things. Now, Peter, again, has similar tendencies. We already know <laughs> that hot-headedness goes naturally with the sort of active, decisive, initiative taking personality that made him a leader in the first place. Such a man easily grows impatient with people who lack vision or underperform. He can be quickly irritated by those who throw up obstacles to success. Therefore, he must learn restraint in order to be a good leader. And when you think about it, and, and this is why it's so important that we look at this with our own selves. You know, for instance, if you have to, say, tutor a child that's your brother or sister or your own child, and say you're tutoring them in math, okay? Or fractions, fractions is always fun, okay? <laughs> so you're tutoring them in fractions. Have you ever noticed that you can, it seems almost like you can tutor somebody else's child in fractions, and you can be patient and everything. And then when it comes to your own child, you're like, why don't you get this? Okay, I mean, it's obviously if half of the pie is gone, that's half. I mean, you know, you, you start to get like, you notice that your restraint level is not quite what it should be. Well, <laughs> what I'm saying to you is being a good leader, we have to learn because everybody doesn't always see things the way that we see it at the time that we see it. You know what I mean? Like, you may see the sky blue. I may look up and see it gray. Somebody else may look up in and see it purple. It doesn't mean that I'm right and everybody else is wrong or you're right and all of us are wrong. It, it, we have to develop restraint. It's not always easy to do, but we obviously can do it because Peter did it and God is no respecter of persons. So if Peter did it, then that means we can do it. And it's important that we do do it in a form of leadership. And for all of us who are here, we're supposed to, I mean, even if you're not in ministry of helps and considered a quote unquote leader, okay, of the ministry, you are still a leader because you're a Christian. So when you are out in the secular world, you are a leader. So you've gotta develop restraint. It's not always easy, but guess what? That might be something that's easy for you. It may not be easy for somebody else. So it's something that we can learn from Peter. Now, the scene in the garden where Peter tried to decapitate Malchus <laughs> is a classic example of his natural lack of restraint. Even surrounded by hundreds of Roman soldiers, all armed to the teeth, Peter unthinkingly just pulled out his sword and was ready to wade into the crowd swinging. 
That was his natural tendency. It was fortunate for him that Malchus lost nothing but an ear, and the best news was that Jesus immediately healed the damage, okay? As we have already seen, Jesus rebuked Peter sternly. Now, the rebuke must have been especially difficult for Peter because coming as he was in front of a horde of enemies, but he learned much from what he witnessed that night. Later, he would write about that too. So go back to 1 Peter, already there. Um, we're going to look at verses 21 to 23. And in the Amplified Classic of 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 21, it says, this is Peter writing, for even to this were you called, for even to this were you called, it is inseparable from your vocation. For Christ also suffered for you, leaving you his personal example, so that you should follow in his footsteps. He was guilty of no sin, neither was deceit guile ever found on his lips. When he was reviled and insulted, he did not revile or offer insult in return. When he was abused and suffered, he made no threats of vengeance, but he trusted himself and everything to him who judges fairly. Now, if we look at it in the message, it breaks it down a little bit different. And it says, this is the kind of life you've been invited into, the kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so you would know that it could be done and also know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong. Not once said anything amiss. They called him every name in the book and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea who you were or where you were going. Now you are named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. That is a gorgeous translation to me anyway. So now how different that writing, okay, is from the young man who tried to grab a sword and whack his way through his opposers. Peter had finally learned what? The lesson of restraint. He also, because he still had to learn some things, he also had to learn humility. Leaders are often tempted by the sin of pride. In fact, the harassing sin of leadership may be the tendency to think more of oneself than he ought to think. Personally, I call it, which I adopted from Coach Pat Riley because of course, I do love basketball. <laughs> but anyway, he calls it the disease of me. And I really do, I like that term because people do develop that sometimes. You see, when people are following your lead, constantly praising you, looking up to you, and admiring you, it is too easy to become overcome with pride. Now you see, to me, now this is just in the opinion of Iva, okay? I think this can easily happen to people when they take on the mantle of what they're doing 
and placing it upon themselves as if it's all about them. You see, if you don't do that, then this doesn't really apply to you. Like I remember once, oh gosh, this was years ago, probably about 25, 26 years ago. That's when you know you're definitely blessed and getting older. When you can start talking about what happened all of these years ago, then you know, oh, you're getting up there. But anyway, this was about 25 or 26 years ago. I had gone to this huge, um, it was actually a service with Pastor Bernard. It was, I, I think it was, a, it was actually, it was. It was a Resurrection Sunday service. And he had it in this huge, it was, I think it was the Nassau Coliseum because all these people came. And Helen Baylor was uh, ministering. And she got up to minister and, you know, they had the, the house lights, you know, nice and low. She stopped in the middle of the song and made them turn all the house lights up as bright as possible. And I looked at her and she said, I'm doing this because my flesh is trying to rise up and remind me of how it was when I used to be in the club singing and carrying on and this doesn't have anything to do with me. So it was her way of keeping her flesh under in its proper place. And I was like, oh, I really, I appreciated that about her. Just made me just appreciate her even more. But the point is, she recognized that about herself. Sometimes people really do not. They just start thinking, you know, it's about them or whatever. I don't know. See, for me, I know full well, like I know my name, full well, like I enjoy certain things like chocolate and Christmas and stuff like that. I know that when I am standing up here, it is the Holy Spirit who is doing the teaching. I am just making myself available. So for me, this is not apt to happen because I know it's not about me. But a lot of people, unfortunately, for some reason or another, no one's ever, I guess, shared that with them. They don't get that. And they start getting all puffed up into themselves, I guess, and this becomes an issue. And you'll know. Nobody has to tell you. You'll know because, again, why? You can locate someone by their conversation. So when you hear the things coming out of their mouths, you will know, hmm, okay, you might be having a little bit of a challenge with that. Now, we can observe in Peter a tremendous amount of self-confidence. It's obvious by the way he jumps in and answers all of the questions all the time, okay? It's also obvious in most of his actions, such as when he jumped out of the boat and began to walk on the water with Jesus. Okay, nobody else did that, but he was one of the first to jump out and do that. It became obvious in a negative way on the fateful occasion when Jesus foretold that his disciples would forsake him. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 26th chapter, and we're going to look first at verse 31. Matthew 26, verse 31. The Amplified Classic Edition says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all, how many things are left out of all? Okay. You will all, meaning all people, will be offended and stumble and fall away because of me this night, distrusting and deserting me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Well, Peter was just so certain, okay, that this was definitely not going to happen to him. Uh, he, just was, he just knew it could never happen to him. 
And he was bold enough to make that declaration to Jesus. So just drop down to verse 33 in Matthew 26. And it says, Peter declared to, declared to him, meaning Jesus, though they are all offended and stumble and fall away because of you and distrust and desert you, I will never do so. And then I like the message. The message says, Peter broke in, even if everyone else falls into pieces on account of you, I won't. Okay, because he really did believe this to be true. And he made that bold declaration. Of course, as usual, Peter was wrong and Jesus was right, okay? Peter did deny Christ not once, but multiple times, just as Jesus had warned. Peter's shame and disgrace after having dishonored Christ so flagrantly were only magnified by the fact that he had boasted so stubbornly about being incapable of such sins. That's why you have to be so careful when you use the word never. It's a real strong word. But the Lord used all of this to make Peter humble. It worked so much so that when Peter wrote his first epistle, he made clear the importance of humility. Turn with me to 1 Peter. And you might still be hanging out there, but go to 1 Peter. Yeah, you're still kind of there. And we're going to look at the fifth chapter, verses 5 and 6. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. And if you read it, I'm going to share it first out of the Amplified Classic Edition, and it says, Likewise, you who are younger and of lesser rank, be subject to the elders. Here's the qualifier the ministers and spiritual guides of the church, giving them due respect and yielding to their counsel. Clothe, apron yourselves, all of you, with humility as the garb of a servant, so that its covering cannot possibly be stripped from you with freedom from pride and arrogance toward one another. For God sets himself against the proud, Here's the qualifier, the insolent, the overbearing, the disdainful, the presumptuous, the boastful. And he opposes, frustrates, and defeats them, but gives grace, favor, blessing to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, demote, lower yourselves in your own estimation under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. That says a lot. That is extremely powerful. If we look at it in the message, it says, when God, who is the best shepherd of all, comes out in the open with his rule, he'll see that you've done it right and commend you lavishly. And you who are younger must follow your leaders. But all of you, leaders and followers alike, are to be down to earth with each other for God has had it with the proud, but takes delight in just plain people. So be content with who you are and don't put on airs. God's strong hand is on you. He'll promote you at the right time. Live carefree before God. He is most careful with you. Peter was specific with what we just read in addressing church leaders and how they should treat those entrusted to them. Humility became one of the virtues that characterized Peter's life, his message, and his leadership style. 
Peter also learned love. All of the disciples struggled with learning that true spiritual leadership means loving service to one another. The real leader is someone who serves, not someone who demands to be waited upon. Okay, and I'm sure we all know some people who are like that. They just expect you to do stuff for them. Really? Hmm. <laughs> now, this is a hard lesson for many natural leaders to learn. They tend to see people as a means to their end. That's a horrible thing to say, but it is true. Leaders are usually task-oriented rather than people-oriented. As a result, they often use people or plow over people in order to achieve their goals. Peter and the rest of the disciples needed to learn that leadership is rooted and grounded in loving service to others. The true leader loves and serves those whom he leads. Jesus explains this in Mark's gospel, the ninth chapter. So you can turn over to Mark 9, and we're going to look at verse 35. Mark's gospel, the ninth chapter, verse 35. And the Amplified, it says, sitting down to teach, and this is Jesus, he called the 12 disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all in importance and a servant to all. The message says he sat down and summoned the 12, so you want first place? Then take the last place. Be the servant of all. The Lord Jesus himself constantly modeled that kind of loving servant leadership for his disciples. Nowhere is it more plainly displayed than in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. Jesus and the disciples had come together to celebrate the Passover in a rented room in Jerusalem. The Passover Seder was an extended ceremonious meal lasting as long as four to five hours, okay? Now, celebrants in that culture usually reclined at a low table rather than sitting upright in chairs. And, you know, we can understand that. We can imagine ourselves, you know, like when you get together with your family at Thanksgiving time or Christmas and you have that big meal and itis kind of sets in, you know, you kind of start slumping over to the side and laying down. Okay, well, hey, they're just telling you that this is <laughs> what they did. Now, the positioning, and think about it, the positioning meant that one person's head would be next to another person's feet. Now, of course, you gotta remember the time. All of the roads were either muddy or dusty, so feet were just constantly dirty. Therefore, there was a common custom, and that custom was that when you went into a house for a meal, there was usually a servant whose job it was to wash the guests' feet. This was practically the lowliest and least desirable of all jobs, as you can imagine. I mean, you know, you can go and get a pedicure and you look over and see some people's feet and go, oh my goodness. <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, they've been on dusty roads and muddy roads. It's not something everybody's going to just, you know, be excited to do. Okay, so, but for any host to neglect to arrange for his guest's feet to be washed, was considered a significant insult at the time. Now, if you look at Luke's gospel, 
the seventh chapter, verse 44, it tells us that. And the amplified version of Luke 7, verse 44 says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, because again, we already know, whenever Simon is mentioned, Peter has already kind of said something he didn't need to, okay? Do you see this woman? This is Jesus speaking. I came into your house, meaning Peter's house, okay? But you failed to extend to me the usual courtesies shown to a guest. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, demonstrating her love. Hmm. I really like that. The message says, Peter answered, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. That's right, said Jesus. Then turning to the woman, but speaking to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? I came to your home. You provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. You provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't she? She was forgiven many, many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, the gratitude is minimal. That spoke a lot. So of course, that's why he called him Simon, because again, Peter was speaking out of turn without thinking. Now apparently on this busy Passover night, in that rented room, no provision had been made for any servant to wash the guest's feet. The disciples, however, were evidently prepared to just overlook the breach of etiquette, rather than volunteering to do such a menial task themselves. Because what were they doing? They were thinking so highly of themselves, they weren't even thinking about doing that. They just figured they'd talk about it like the people who come to church when something isn't just so. Instead of trying to chip in to see how to help, they just figured they'll talk about the ministry and talk about what the people didn't do and talk about how that didn't happen and this didn't happen. Nothing new under the sun. The disciples were doing the same, okay? So they gathered around the table as if they were prepared to start the meal without any foot washing, which means they were dirty, okay? Therefore, scripture says, Jesus himself took matters in his own hands. And we turn to John's gospel, the 13th chapter, and we look at verses four and five. It says, got up from supper, took off his outer robe, this is Jesus they're talking about, and taking a servant's towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began washing the disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel which was tied around his waist. The Message Bible says Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God and was on his way back to God. So he got up from the supper table, set aside his robe and put on an apron. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with his apron. Then he got to, when he got to Simon Peter, Peter said, Master, you wash my feet? Because again, you know, Peter is still not necessarily getting what's going on. Jesus himself, the one they rightly called Lord, 
took on the role of the lowest slave and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. According to Luke, at about the same time this occurred, the disciples were in the midst of an argument about which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine? I mean, oh my goodness. So if we look at Luke's gospel, the 22nd chapter and the 24th verse, it says, now a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. And the message says, within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around, and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. Ooh, we know some of those. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. They were interested in being elevated, not humiliated. So Jesus did what none of them would do. He gave them a lesson about the humility of genuine love. Now I'm gonna pause here. What I wanted you to see, if you have not seen already, is throughout all of these things that Peter was learning that helped to make him a leader, he was learning all of them directly from Jesus. And how was Jesus teaching him those things? Through example. He wasn't just beating him up. He wasn't talking to him like, you know, something was wrong with him and how come you're missing it and how come you don't know this and you better do that for me and do this for me. He, through love, was showing him how he needed to be. And for me, the big takeaway that I got from that is, you know what? That's how we're supposed to be in every single facet of our lives. Not just with our brothers and sisters, okay, in the kingdom, but even people that we work with, even people who are in our family, even the people who are considered unlovable. It's very easy to love people who are nice and kind and sweet. It's those people who push you on the subway and call you outside of your name. No, I'm serious, because that's real, okay? It's not so easy sometimes, but we can do it because Peter did it. So if Peter did it, we definitely can because remember, Peter wasn't even born again. So we definitely can do it. Amen? So anyway, we're going to pick up when we come back because you're going to see even some more things that are very interesting. And one thing I can promise you next week, guess what? We're gonna finally, finally start talking about Andrew. <laughs> because I feel like, oh my goodness. But I, I have to say, I feel as if we truly have learned a lot through looking at Peter because we can all see a little bit of ourselves in him. And we definitely can see some people that we know in him. So, I mean, I think it's a good thing. And that it can really free up people from a lot of things because sometimes you may have had a parent or a grandparent who you thought, oh my gosh, this is like, this, guy, this man is rough. But you might be able to see Peter in him. 
to be able to look at him a little bit more compassionately and realize, oh, well, he was really just being a leader. Yes, maybe he did not have the opportunity that Peter had to walk with Jesus, and maybe he needed to be fine-tuned a little bit, and maybe he was a little rough around the edges, but he still had that heart. And it might be a little bit easier for you to accept certain things or certain people that you may have known that you couldn't quite understand. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 945 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.